Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 12th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Today, we are joined by Roger Bissell. Um, before I even begin to introduce Roger, I wanted to remind all of our audience joining us on Zoom as well as on Facebook Live uh, to type your questions into the comment stream, and we will get to as many of them as possible. So uh, Roger has considered himself an objectivist for over 50 years, uh, a professional musician. He has spent his career both performing live and recording in the studio. He has written four books, plus many, many essays, most of which have been published in the Journal of Ayn Rand Studies. Uh, and he has also edited many other books, including two by Nathaniel Randon. Roger, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jennifer. Good to be here. So, um, Roger, how did you get your start in uh, objectivism? What really hooked you in terms of um, your love of Ayn Rand's philosophy, and how, how has it personally impacted your career and your life? Well, I was a senior in high school, um, headed toward a math major in college, but really very busy in music. My band director uh, was actually an objectivist. She had gone to some of the Nathaniel Brandon lectures and she gave me an essay from the newsletter called Benevolence Versus Altruism. And uh, she said, here, read this. I said, okay. So I read it. I brought it back to her. She said, what'd you think? I said, it makes sense. She says, hmm. And a couple of days later, she gave me a copy of Atlas Shrugged, and she had inscribed in it some good wishes. And so it was a Friday. I took it home and read it. By Sunday morning, 2 a.m., light bulbs were going off all over in my head. And I said, wow, I get it. And uh, so that's how I got into it. I read all the other novels. I started reading the nonfiction. And by the sophomore year of college, I considered myself a radical for capitalism and an objectivist, and I have ever since. And I suppose, you know, people like prefixes because it gives you a, a littler pigeonhole to fit in so you feel more unique. And I consider myself a post-Randian objectivist. A Randian objectivist because there are other philosophies called objectivism, but hers was the most famous, but it's Randian objectivism. And I'm post because I'm continuing in that tradition, but I'm not really officially one of those folks. I've taken off somewhat in my own thinking. Um, I wouldn't say Neo, some people like Neo, but I think that's for revivals and we're not ready for a revival yet because it hasn't died out yet. <laughs> so, so we'll stick with that. And you asked, how has it influenced my life? It influenced me a great deal. Um, it answered a lot of questions, but it also left a lot of gaps. Uh, and those are problems. I love problems, I love puzzles. Uh, and so those have stayed with me through the years. Uh, also, lifelong friends. I've I've met some of the best friends in my whole life many years ago in college, and they're still my friends, and some more along the way. And my wife, to whom I've been married for 30 years, I met her in college. So all of those factors are part of why it has been important to me. Plus, um, I became a musician rather than a math professor because that was what really was most deeply important to me. And one of the messages in Atlas Shrugged was, don't let it go. If it's really important to you, it means everything to you, don't give it up. And so that message 
almost more than any other message from the philosophy told me, be true to yourself, be true to what's most deeply important to you. Yes, well, speaking of um, the relationships and the friendships, I know that you have uh, spoken at the uh, summer seminars that uh, David Kelly had for so many decades, and he remembers uh, you very fondly from from that oh. uh, from that time. And um, but given your unique perspective, um, your much longer time being involved in objectivism than me. Um, what are some of the ways that you feel that the movement has changed um, for the better, uh, for the worst areas of, of uh, areas yeah. for improvement, perhaps? Yeah, sure. Well, I think one of the most important things that's happened is the movement has become decentralized. I think it's really good when you have a lot of centers of activity that are doing different things, not reinventing the wheel where they're all trying to outdo each other, but where they're each trying to contribute something helpful and important. Uh, and this started in a big way in 1990 when David Kelly started the Institute for Objectivist Studies, and he launched something called Open Objectivism, which is, I think, another extremely important thing for the movement. I think that it's death for a set of ideas if you clamp down on people's creativity and desire to explore research and development. Research and development, if again, if it's under the control of one circle of people, things tend not to get developed very well. Whereas if you spread it out, then there's a lot more exploration, a lot more chance for new ideas, creative insights to be found. So I think that was. The third thing was the creation of the Journal of Ayn Rand Studies, which is now in its 20th year of publication under Chris Skibara's editorship. Um, I've written a lot for the journal. Um, and there's been 150 or more authors, I believe, that have had a chance to have their point of view and their ideas expressed in the journal. And to me, that's an extremely important thing for the vitality of the movement to have a place for people to offer their ideas. The seminar, the summer seminars were really good too, because a lot of people could not only give the official presentations, but also there were rooms where people would give off, uh, I don't know, off the list, off the schedule presentations. So there's a lot of chance to to, for this bubbling up of creativity and, and new ideas. And the fourth thing, of course, is the internet. I mean, my gosh, look at what the Ayn Rand Institute is doing with all of the content they put up there. It's amazing. And there are podcasts and there are discussion groups that we've had since the 90s. And there's Zoom meetings where we can hear things like this. So all of these things, I think technology and decentralization, if you want to say those two things are, are incredibly important for keeping a movement alive and, and growing and developing and not just kind of becoming very closed in on itself. Yeah, that really resonates with me in terms of what you say about decentralization. Um, of course, Adam Smith, when he wrote The Wealth of Nations, one of the things he attributed um, The Wealth of Nations was to uh, specialization, you know, that you could right. have different people doing different things. And, right. um, and that's certainly the way we look at it at the Atlas Society. We have, at least under my um, 
direction have focused uh, very, not entirely strictly because we still do have a range of products, but our primary target audience is young people who have yet to be introduced to the ideas. So we do a lot of study of what are the consumer habits of our target demographic? What kinds of things are they watching? What kinds of um, videos are they enjoying? How are they processing content? And then we tailor content yeah. specifically to them, which is, you know, totally different than what the, the Journal of Ayn Rand Studies is doing. Um, but it's just a different part of the, the economy, the flourishing economy of, uh, of people still interested in and promoting and engaging uh, with these ideas. Now, I see that you're a book person, and I'm a book person, too, unless those are just brought in for the shoot. But, <laughs> but uh, books, uh, I think one of the things that impressed me most about objectivism was people churning out books. Uh, not only Rand and Brandon and Peacock, but many other people. And I think that whatever we produce, whether it's categorized as post-objectivism or dialectical libertarianism or neo-Aristotelian Thomist or whatever, a lot of the people doing these things are children of objectivism. They are carrying on in a tradition, whether we think of ourselves as officially part of that movement or fellow travelers or whatever, we're carrying on a tradition that's very important. And some of us may feel disowned or estranged, uh, but we're still doing what we love. We're still doing what is most important to us and, and what we're intensely interested in. And I think that 50 years ago, if I, if somebody had said, well, what do you think you'll be doing 50 years from now? I wouldn't have had the faintest idea that I'd be doing exactly what I'm doing now. And yet here I am. Well, uh, yes, these books are, are not props, but they're not my books. These are my, my father's books, including his um, textbook on cardiology, which includes Ooh. a drawing uh, from yours truly when I was 12 years old, because I think that art has been even more than books for me, my thing. And so that's why, um, sure. you know, our best-selling uh book from the Atlas Society is our graphic novel, which is artistic, mm. it uses art, it uses color, <laughs> and it, it brings uh, the content to life in a different way and the videos in the same uh, sphere. But of course, I am speaking to someone who has made his uh, living in art. So, and Ayn Rand wrote quite a bit about art. As a lifelong musician uh, and an objectivist, what is the connection uh, that you see between music and Ayn Rand's ideas about aesthetics. We don't have enough time. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think her basic theory of art is brilliantly insightful. I agree with it. And I think that she's got it exactly right. And some people say, well, architecture is not a, a, doesn't fit her definition. I think it does. She's, some people say music doesn't fit her definition. I think it does. I've written about this, so I'm not going to you know, do chapter and verse on that. But I'll just say that I think that what she wrote in her essay, Art and Cognition about music, was really off base. I think it was, I kind of cringe when I read it. Um, she had bizarre ideas about music. She thought Mozart was pre-music. She thought Beethoven had a malevolent universe premise. She thought that um, here's that rainy day had no melody and she didn't like jazz. 
I have a little story to tell you about, about jazz and Leonard Peikoff. I'll just be brief. Uh, I made a jazz duo CD with a piano playing friend of mine a few years ago, and I wanted Leonard to hear it because I knew he liked ragtime piano and, and piano jazz. So I sent it to his office, and his secretary wrote back and said, Dr. Peikoff only likes piano jazz. And so I'm thinking piano and trombone, well, couldn't you just sort of like listen a little more intently when the piano's playing and then when the trombone plays, maybe get a snack or something. But no, uh, so that was that. Um, jazz is well, a very At least she didn't say he only likes Rachmaninoff. Oh my gosh. Um, I love Rachmaninoff. I loved Rachmaninoff before I found out that Ayn Rand liked it. So that legitimizes my liking of it, I guess. Uh, it, jazz is a very big part of my music career and my listening library, and I think there's a lot of beauty and a lot of inventiveness and vitality in it. There are some objectivists, uh, I forget the guy's name, but he's written two books on music, and he's a composer and a teacher, and he claims that jazz and African-influenced music is basically primitive jungle music, and even Gershwin was tainted by it, not to mention jazz and rock and roll and pop music. So. Um, there are people who have a very different uh, perspective on music than I do. I like all, almost all forms of music if it's good. And if it's not good, well, you know, let someone else listen to it. So speaking of uh, music, and also I just want to remind everybody, if you're just joining us now, hit us up with a question. If you're on Facebook, in the comment stream, I'll take a look and get to them, keep them short if possible. Uh, also just type them on into the Zoom. We've had such a great group joining us every single week since the beginning of the lockdowns for, for this um, oh. webinar. So it's just been yes. super awesome. But so speaking of the lockdowns, Roger, how has the music industry um, been affected? How have you personally uh, been impacted by the response of pol politicians from um, across the country on COVID. What's it meant for you? Well, I can give you a general impression and I can certainly tell you how it's affected me. My own work has been severely impacted since March. I've only had two live outdoor socially distanced masked. Well, once I, when I was playing, I took the mask off, but other than that, and I have actually had one recording session, which is going to happen tomorrow. But uh, this is true for nearly all of my colleagues here in Nashville. Uh, some of them are doing live streaming performances or at home recording, but for the most part, it's just shut down. The National Symphony Orchestra shut down in March and its entire next season has been canceled. Just very sad. Nothing through June of 2021 from those folks. The Nashville Ballet is shut down. Country and jazz clubs, a lot of music. I had a live club job in Ray Stevens' uh, nightclub, Cabo Ray, which we worked there exactly two weeks and then it closed in early March and we don't have a definite reopening date. I think this is nationwide. I think it's gonna continue for a while longer. Uh, I'd like it if it all went back to normal on November 4th because I think some of this is political. If it weren't an election year, we might be looking at it in the rearview mirror, but unfortunately we're still dealing with it. Well, prior to Election Day, we do have a, a gala coming up on October 14th in LA, and I have been flying throughout the quarantine. Uh, so, you know, if you'd like a, a standing date to come and play for us out in <laughs> LA, then we would love it. Um, 
so yeah, I, I also love music. My parents uh, sing in a choir. I uh, have sang in the choir at, at my temple for the High Holy Days. And it's uh, the singing in particular has been particularly impacted because of the oh, yeah, theories about you know, the transmission and all of that. So it's, um, it's been sad, but we've, we have found other ways to sing together uh, as a family and sing together uh, on the page in how we edit and how we write. And I understand that uh, in addition to writing books and essays, you've done a lot of editing and you just edited a novel written by Nathaniel Brandon, Layers. Uh, right. Tell us, tell us about that, that's fascinating. <laughs> um, yeah, um, well, I've known Nathaniel, who's no longer with us, of course, uh, since the early 90s. I've been with him maybe a dozen times personally. Um, and the same thing for uh, Barbara Brandon, his former wife. She's no longer with us either. And sometime during the late 2000s, I started transcribing their old recorded lectures. And I know that at least some of this material has been offered through the Atlas Society um, in, in previous years. Uh, it's really good stuff. It's the, the original lectures on efficient thinking that Barbara had and on basic principles that Nathaniel had. I'm going to get to the novel in a minute. Um, I told Barbara, who we had dinner with, my wife and I uh, had dinner with one night, I said, I'm doing this. She says, oh my goodness, you must continue. In fact, you must do Nathaniel's and then we must convince him to put them out as a book and short story we did he did and so that's out in a book called the vision of Ayn Rand uh, Barbara's lectures a few years later were put out in a book called think as if your life depends on it because it does and then just a few months ago I was approached to edit the manuscript for his novel Layers, which is a fascinating book. I think it's all about, well, it's partly about can you love two people at the same time and how does that work out? And it's partly about uh, what if you're not really locked in to what you really most deeply want and need to be doing in your career. Uh, and I don't think I'm giving away anything because it's a blurb on the on the back of the, uh, uh, I think it's mostly on the back of the book. Um, I recommend it highly. It's very therapeutic and it's a very fascinating story. Um, and it was a lot of fun to edit, getting inside somebody's head, getting inside someone's style. They always say, if you wanna to learn to write, then uh, copy out or really get into and edit somebody else's work. And you learn a lot about somebody's style, their, their style of thinking, their style of writing when you do that. And uh, uh, it, it was just, it was very personal, it was a very personal experience to, to look at their lectures that way, to look at his novel that way. Uh, it, it's just a unique experience, uh, very deep and, and profound. Wow, well, we are really looking forward to seeing that and uh, would love to review it at the Atlas Society. Of course, Good. one of the things that we did uh, a couple years ago is we took all of the Nathaniel Brandon lecture series and we um, made those available they're on our site they're also available on audible so people can um, go and and listen to those 
And, uh, you know, there were so many people over the years that recall listening, you know, around uh, a set player to those lectures as having been- Real to real, real yeah, to real. real. In the late 60s, I did. Yeah, so it's, it's great to keep these resources uh, still alive. I, how much, uh, Roger, do you think um, that the objectivist movement in terms of uh, maybe areas where it could be there's being held back or, or that uh, that there's sort of a tribalism or would you attribute to the the split with uh, between Brandon and, and Rand or is it more just of a focus on we have to keep things as they were and not evolve or iterate? Well, I think that there was a split, a schism, and that isn't healed yet. So that's a fact. Uh, there have been some movement in the direction of communicating with each other, and that's good. Um, as far as um, tribalism, uh, uh, I, I do think that there is some in-group like our group's better than your group and uh and ill wishes especially flowing in one particular direction uh and that's that's very harmful um i think that first of all we have a beautiful perspective on life and the world that can benefit a lot of people and a lot of people need to hear about it and secondly it, it has a framework for your life <clears throat> that encourages people to not only be rational and productive, but also to figure out what you love best and then do it as rationally and independently and productively as you can. And anytime I see a group tending to get more concerned with the structure and the preservation of the status quo, rather than exploring and developing and progressing, then I'm, I'm really concerned for that. And uh, I think that there has been a lot of progress has been made in spite of that, that attitude uh, in the last 20 years. Um, I've mentioned the open objectivism. I mentioned the Journal of Ayn Rand Studies. I'd like to see more coming out of ARI because they're sitting on an enormous pile of money and they ought to be pushing research and development, not chewing and rechewing. It's important to reach out and say, hey, have you heard about this? But it's also important to say, what, what else do we have? Steve Jobs is a role model for objectivism. It's, this guy was never satisfied. He was always looking for something new, a new product to satisfy people's needs. And objectivists have needs. Objectivists have life aspirations and they need tools for reaching them. And I think that um, if people would study the really great entrepreneurs and say, what did they do that worked? Then, and then apply it to objectivism instead of saying, well, how can we make sure that the light bulb stays pure and nobody messes with it? You know, it's like, let's make better light bulbs. Yeah, I think uh, from my experience working with entrepreneurs and being an entrepreneur, 
myself that entrepreneurs uh, embrace making mistakes. They, they also almost have a quasi-irrational uh, attraction to taking risks. I know I do, and it's gotten me into trouble, but it's also gotten me where I am because uh, if, I, if I didn't right. take risks, I would never kind of um, grow and, and get outside what has been done uh, be before. Um, I, I think that uh, John Allison actually puts it really well in when he talks yes. about um, that, that innovation is, is, uh, is the source of progress because you're, by definition, you're doing something differently than it's been done in the past. So, right. you know, you need to be willing to do things differently, do things uh, in a way that um, other people aren't going to like and be independent of that, you know? So, uh, all right, well, listen, we have got some really great, we've got actually a lot of, lot of just plain old love uh, and well wishes to you, oh, uh, which aren't even questions, but people <laughs> like uh, Lawrence Borland, hey, Lawrence, so great to see you, uh, said that he met you at David Kelly's seminar, um, and uh, he good to see you uh, similar to my youngest daughter an opera singer who's also an objectivist larry i didn't know that about you we need to do a atlas uh, member spotlight on you um okay this is an interesting <laughs> question from william walsh uh roger if you have one don't mean to put you on the spot here what's your philosophical analysis of rap music. Oh, good. I saw that. I saw that on the side about five minutes ago, and I thought, I wonder if I missed any other interesting questions. Um, I'm not a fan of rap. I am a fan of poetry, and I uh, I like amusing poetry. I don't like uh, the really violent or uh, sexually gross stuff. The, some of which I've seen very recently. Um, heard, seen. Um, I'm a big fan of syncopated music in general. I think starting around 1880, there was a big change in the rhythmic nature of music. Ragtime, jazz, and swing, rock, and country, uh, pop, soul, rap, all of that stuff is there's good and there's bad. And so I don't say rap is bad any more than I think anyone should say jazz is bad. I mean, if that's your opinion, you can back it up philosophically, go for it. But um, I just, I, I'm not attracted to it. Um, and some of it I find amusing or entertaining, but it's, it doesn't have a deep uh, a, a pull on me. Yeah, I... Uh... I just listened to a new friend of mine, somebody I met on TikTok, Terrence Wren, who uh, has been helping us promote our videos and our uh, graphic novel and pocket guides to new audiences. And he's got, he's, he's highly critical of, of the rap culture. Sure. Um, but he's got, he, he uses the, the, the melodies and he makes his own rap, but the, the messages are, about you know being an individual standing on your own two sure. feet and and shining so i'm i'm giving it a a, a second chance okay you should. so you should <laughs> uh and 
maybe he'll be our backup if uh, if we don't get you out to the gala. I'll have Terrence um, perform his All beautiful right. um, "Shine" is my song that I like from him. Okay, um, so we have some other questions. Uh, can we, as a human race, ever uh, really join together without needing um, without people needing to be in control of others? Um, that's one. And then also, what advice do you have for young musicians early in their careers um, who have been sidelined by COVID? Oh, the first question, um, controlling. Um, I suppose you can ask that in regard to, do we need government? I think we do. I think we need some form of, of a structure that will uh, apprehend people who violate others' rights and who will subject them to a process of figuring out, you know, whether they have done it or not and what uh, restitution or penalty there should be for that. Uh, and also, uh, I mean, courts in general for if people have disputes. But, you know, there is a concern nowadays more generally about power structures, even in like businesses or families. And like, in the old patriarchal hierarchical thing in a family well, the father calls the shots and everybody else kind of has to go along with it or in the or in the corporation the ceo calls the shots and everybody else has to go along with it and that, then there's a lot of thought that well we need a, a more egalitarian structure in the family and in and in corporations um i think that as long as people are allowed to experiment with structures then uh, and it's a free, a free society. Then just we'll see what works, and maybe all of them will work, and maybe it's just a matter of individual preferences. I don't know, but I I I do not agree with this anti-hierarchy uh, philosophy that I hear a lot uh, these days, um, as far as power structures. I, I don't mean power. I mean who is the decider who's the owner and the boss and who are working for the person and, and how do you balance people's contributions and thoughts and, and, and so on. Uh, as far as, uh, I hope that's adequate, as far as uh, what about going into uh, the music career, how about going into any career these days? Uh, there's so much chaos and it's not just because of, of uh, the problems with the, the health risks and so on, but there's also, do you want to start up a business in a large city these days? Oh my God. I mean, there's, there's so much violence going on and is it going to stop on November 4th? Is it going to stop next week? Probably not. Um, I would, if I were living in New York City, uh, I would probably be packing up or Portland or Minneapolis. I think it's, I think what they're doing in those cities is nuts. And so starting a career anywhere, uh, there are creative ways to do it. You can do some of it online. You can maybe work in a small town. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, you can just stay out of trouble, stay out of the, away from the violence. But uh, everything seems almost to be on hold right now. And I don't mean nothing's going on because businesses are starting. People are working, but to a young person, um, I hesitate to tell anybody to go into music or art in general. I just say, do what you love, find a way to make it work, and good luck. 
uh, and have a backup, you know, have a plan B. Stay flexible, uh, look at the facts. Don't just be in your head, say, well, this is what I really want, so it will work. It may not. Um, that's tough. If, if I had been in this situation we are now 50 years ago, um, I came from a small rural area in Iowa. I don't know what I would have done. I might have stayed on the farm. Although, no, um, no, I grew up on a farm and uh, I got really good music education. I said, that's what I want to do. And so I made it work. You grew up on a farm and now we're living through animal farms. So ah! uh, <laughs> yeah. how, how far we've come. Yeah, I would also maybe take a slightly different um, perspective on the question about advice to young um, musicians. Our, honoree this year at the gala is Peter Diamandis, who uh, is co-founder of the X Prize and Singularity University. And, and in his books like Abundance and The Future is Faster Than You Think, uh, he talks a lot about um, accelerating technologies and the, the things that are growing right now are still a lot of technologies that um, enable you to communicate and to monetize. Um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so, you know, I've seen people that are becoming music stars on TikTok, you know, becoming um, or monetizing performances, um, comedians right. on, right. Uh, but it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but I think there are opportunities and those are probably a lot more accessible to uh, to the younger generation that this technology is very intuitive, that it is very native to them. So, yeah. so it's, uh, it's, it's still, it's still possible. Um, okay. Uh, all right. So I've got a question from Roger, um, no, for Roger from Avi Guy. Avi, uh, what a beautiful sure. name. I hope sure. I'm not um, mispronouncing it. Uh, hi, Roger. I heard you were transcribing Alan Blumenthal's lectures. Will you make them available to others? That's old news. Um, <laughs> um, I think I transcribed those lectures about 15 years ago. Uh, and I reached out to Alan uh, Blumenthal and I said, here they are. I don't, I'm not looking for any money for them, but I thought that you might want to uh, publish them as a book. The problem with publishing lectures on music as a book, unless it's uh, an ebook with links to uh, music samples you can hear, um, is obviously um, you can't hear a book unless it's an audio book or something with samples. So uh, at any rate, he said that he and his wife were considering making a new video of it or something but that he hadn't really decided and uh that was it that was the last of that discussion and, and um these the uh transcriptions i make are for my own personal use unless the people that they are of would like to make some use of them and then here you go you know i i do them for my own study and my own uh learning uh, so, so I'm really sorry that um, uh, they won't be available unless Dr. Blumenthal decides to do something with them. Um, Kate Jones uh, asks if you like puzzles. She has been um, 
creating puzzles for the past 41 years based on math uh, at hergamepuzzles.com. And uh, she has been, she calls herself a Randite um, for 50 years, and her father knew Rachmaninoff personally. Oh. So that's wow. pretty darn cool. Uh, yeah. Kate, you'll have to write that for us. Yeah. Do I like puzzles? I love puzzles, I, all kinds. When I grew up, I did a lot of uh, jigsaw puzzles on the kitchen table or on a card table. That was uh, crossword puzzles. My my grandmother, my mom's mom, was a, and so is my mom, a, a big crossword puzzle fan. Uh, they had a contest in the Des Moines Register each week. And of course, three or four clues or entries would always be ambiguous where it could be three or four different answers so it ended up almost being like a lottery who would win the prize for that week well and i always joke that uh, my, my grandma wanted to be buried six down and four across you know so so uh i love sudoku puzzles i got into doing those maybe 15 years ago when i was still working in the band at disneyland and there was the New York, the uh, Los Angeles Times and the Orange County, County Register each had at least one, if not two Sudoku puzzles. And I'd blaze through those on my breaks. And, and uh, uh, so they kind of keep the brain fresh. Um, I can be left in the dust pretty quickly with some of the more sophisticated variations on Sudoku. I have a book where I thought, uh-oh, uh-oh, that's too hard. Somebody gave me a 12 by 12, usually they're nine by nine, but I think it was 16 by 16. And, and it was crazy, but I actually solved it. I finished it in the airport in, in Seattle. That's how I remember that. And it was, it, was, it was one of those experiences you think, okay, I don't ever want to do that again, but it's like climbing Mount Everest. It was just uh, incredible. Yes, I love puzzles. Well, we're going to have to hook you up with some of those. We've got a puzzle-loving family here uh, at the Good. Grossman family, except I am sort of the opposite. I like to take something and take it apart. Oh, yes. And then, and then put it together in a totally very different way, which doesn't always work out. But. Absolutely. I've been doing that for years and years with math things and with election returns. I'll, I'll pull, I like to think of myself as kind of a Quincy, you know, remember Quincy from that TV series? Well, he was like a medical examiner or something, and he'd, he'd do autopsies, and he'd take the bodies apart and say, hmm, okay. And uh, um, I like to do that. That's, that's one of my main ways of analysis. Some people have x-ray vision where they can just look at something, and they can say, aha, and I have to have pencil and paper or someplace to take it apart and put all the parts out, and, and that's how I analyze. I analyze in a very tactile kinesthetic kind of visual way rather than being able to just do it all up here and i i'm astonished at the people who can do that my wife is that way she she has and i think ayn rand was that way she would hear a problem or an issue and it would be like she'd immediately see see how it connected to um, something you'd never guess how it was connected to and i thought wow to be able to think like that but you know I know, just so, so astonishing, breathtaking. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Rainer Anaker asks, uh, I can get this one, anyone know where the MP3s of Nathaniel Brandon's lectures can be obtained? Uh, you can obtain them on the Atlas Society site. Go to the Now Playing section uh, and you will be able to download them or, um, yeah, 
They're also, we've, we've made them available. We take all of our publications at the Atlas Society. This was one of the first things I did when I uh, came on board and I was like a little overwhelmed because I was like, oh my God, I've written all these books. I haven't read them. I don't have time to read them. I've got to save this uh, ship. And so I said, well, I will just, um, I think we should put them all on Audible, which is what I did. And that way I was able to, um, to, to, yeah, to get them all. But I don't know about Barbara Brandon's um, uh, lectures. Do you, Roger? No, I do know that maybe 20, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, something of, of laissez-faire books, I think marketed, uh, it was probably cassettes, it might have been CDs of, uh, of the, yeah, I think it was CDs of the uh, efficient thinking and the basic principles. And I don't think those are available anymore. Um, I do know that there's a fellow in uh, Dallas. Oh, Do Donovan. I can't think of his last name, but he has uh, the culture of reason, and he has a bunch of these materials on uh, MP3s. Uh, from 69 to 73, Nathaniel Brandon did a, a monthly series called Seminar, and he put out 48. Back then, they were LPs, and then somebody digitized them, and they're now available as MP3s. So there's a, a wealth of material in those, if anybody is interested. The culture of reason. Donovan Albanesi. Yes, that's him. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. No, they have a long history with the, the Atlas Society. Yes, um, yes. Well, this has been wonderful. This has definitely felt like a bridge, you know, uh, from the history of objectivism <laughs> to the next generations that yeah. we're helping to introduce to Ayn Rand's um, ideas. Also, a bridge between uh, these different you know, ways of looking at uh, the philosophy of associating with it, closed, open, um, neo, uh, what have you. So I think post, that's yeah. really a yeah. post, post, I, you know, hadn't heard that. So I think that's really cool. And I, I love, I love uh, mixing all of these groups together and um, being open, not just in our way that we look at objectivism, but in the way that we look at each other. I'll close with this really fun little story that happened to me i was at a um sort of a closed objectivist event it wasn't that close because they let me in uh and uh i was introduced to somebody and um i said oh hello i'm jennifer grossman and he said to me very 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 prominent person i oh you run that fraudulent organization the atlas society i can't shake your hand and he did this in front of i mean uh like four other people so I, I just, I was like, oh, well, you know, please carry on, gentlemen. That's so didn't mean to. I'm ashamed to say I know who that was. Trigger, trigger you. Uh, but, yeah. and, but of course, the other gentlemen that were there were just, they were appalled, you know, and they well, were of like, course. Uh, yeah. they, they yeah. came forward and they had, wanted to apologize. And I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> I slipped in the 20. Um, but, uh, but the funny thing is, is that at the end of the day, I guess people don't understand that, like, there are metrics that you can see on, you know, Facebook. <laughs> and so I can see, like, I will occasionally just if I'm bored or whatever, I will do a little uh, live that's not for the Atlas Society. It's just like Michigas, okay, it's just like me dancing or something like that. 
and I and I see like who's watching it, and it's the same person who wouldn't shake my hand, who's watching, who's like consistently watching my Michigas little little videos. So uh, you know, I mean, we are we are all here, and I think we should all be able to to get along, and uh, and I'm confident that we will. I'm confident that we will. I I am too, and you know, I would be doing a disservice if I didn't plug my products. So Please. I'll just say I have a couple of CD recordings available on amazon.com. Uh, one's called Reflective Trombone, one's called The Art of the Duo. They are nice. I have a couple of books available there uh, that are more interesting to philosophy people. One's called How the Namartians Discovered Algebra, and the other one's called What's in Your File Folder. And one's about math and philosophy of math one's about more about logic and propositions and stuff and then i wrote a big 800 page genealogy book which most people won't be too interested in that but they'll be amazed that somebody would work for 40 years and produce an 800 page book so that's oh and and i was co-editor with chris gabara and ed yunkins of a book called the dialectics of liberty exploring the context of human freedom and that came out last year wonderful book um it's got a lot of uh, people in there including some who have spoken at uh, atlas society meetings like uh, robert campbell uh like douglas rasmussen um and i uh i have a great essay in there on the Great American Songbook. I should say a cool essay on the Great American Songbook. And I mentioned Rand and Brandon in my piece. So that's another reason to buy the book. Um, Great. Well, is there a website letting... where we can go to, to uh, check all this out? Dialectics. Oh, there may be some copies left of Dialectics of Liberty. Go to dialecticsoflibertydiscount.com. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. It's doldiscount.com. <laughs> all right. Let's, uh, we, will, we will have that information um, for people that want to know. You can always, we're open door, contact us uh, sure. on our Facebook page, contact us on our website, um, and definitely sign up. As you guys can see, we have the entire, we're booked out through the fall with these spectacular uh, webinars. Next week, we have um, our senior scholar, Stephen Hicks, uh, as well as our artist in residence, Michael Newberry. They're going to be coming on, delving again a little more deeply into this question of art. And then, boy, we've got Andy Puzder, we've got Michael Kaufman, uh, we've got Helen Fisher, Agnieszka Pilat, um, I, I can't even, Jeffrey Singer. So it's going to be awesome. Make sure you're signed up uh, with our newsletter because you'll always get the announcements there. Follow us on Facebook, and uh, and it's been fun. I will see you guys online, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thank you, especially Roger. Thanks, Jennifer. Bye bye. Take care. Bye.